This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This year is the 10th anniversary of the podcast, 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this program, Oliver Jeffers explains how illustrating and writing children's books has changed his fine art painting. When I discovered picture books, that thirst for storytelling and using words and pictures mixed together was completely satisfied. Here's Debbie Millman. Here's a riddle with only one possible answer. What do drip paintings, picture books, and the band U2 have in common? The answer is Oliver Jeffers, of course. The Belfast-bred illustrator and artist has designed covers and co-directed a music video for U2. His picture books for children are celebrated for their illustrations and their writing. And if he's not dripping paint to make an abstract painting... He's dipping a figurative painting in paint. Artist, designer, illustrator, and writer, he joins me now to talk about his multifaceted career. Oliver Jeffers, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you for having me. Oliver, I understand that you grew up in Belfast in Northern Ireland and went to a school that you've described as kind of rough. What does kind of rough mean exactly? Well, kind of rough means that it was filled with the sort of kids who were being kicked out of all the other schools for various sorts of offenses. Were you one of those kids? No, I wasn't one of those kids. I, it's actually at this... I mean, I'm talking... We're, there's, like, serious criminals <laughs> uh, went through the doors of, of that school. Most of the kids were, were fantastic, were great, and they were there because their parents were interested in opening their minds by exposing them to people who were either Catholic or Protestant, whichever religion they were not, because most other kids who go to school in, in Northern Ireland don't come across somebody of the other religion until they, if they go to college. It was a little rough around the ages, but I, I learned how to talk my way out of trouble pretty quickly. How did you do that? Well, I've, first of all, I, I had some some of the people in my group of friends were of the, the toughest variety. Uh, and yeah, it's because I could draw. Um, that, that went both for me and against me. It went against me in that I showed interest in an academic subject and that wasn't cool. But it went for me because the bigger, tougher kids were interested in having me draw on their school bags or under their skateboards. So it went for me in that sense. And what kind of things did you draw under the skateboards? Uh, whatever the hell they told me to, really. <laughs> you know, they, I would just make things up. I would make characters up, the names of their favorite bands, just whatever, whatever it was, really. I understand that your father was one of your biggest influences. That's true, yeah. In what way? Well, in, in many, many ways. He was very encouraging, even though I wanted to, I wanted to go down a road that was unsure, I wanted to make art for a living. He was always incredibly supportive of that. And I just seem to find myself quoting him an awful lot when I'm talking about things that I have learned. So much so that I actually recently just started writing them down, just in one coherent list. Things I don't know my what... father have told me. Yeah, basically. Now, when did you realize that you actually had talent for drawing? When I was in primary school, so I was maybe about 11 years old, I realized that uh, there was me and one other guy in my class who were always being asked to come and help decorate the set for the school play come Christmas time. And, you know, I thought that was great because I just got out of doing the maths lessons and everything. And then I, I suppose at that point I probably realized that I had talent. Uh, and it was at maybe a few years after that that I decided that that's what I wanted to do. 
that's the direction I wanted to go. The education system in the in the UK, because Northern Ireland is technically part of the UK, is interesting in that people have to start closing doors at a very early age. Now, for me, it suited me because I knew what I wanted to do. But you know, most people have, n- frankly, no idea what they want to do, especially when they're thirteen years old. They don't even have an idea when they're 18 or 22. I know most people here are 32 who don't know what they want to do. The system suited me in that I did know that I wanted to go to our college and I knew what the steps were on that path to go. So I had to start selecting my subjects at the the age of 13, my GCSEs, which then led to A-levels, which then led to going to art school. But most other people don't. You know, you're you're being asked to pick your subjects at that age and you, you just have no idea. So it was at around that age that, you know, the you had to go to the careers advisor and answer the questions. And I knew that I loved drawing and I knew that I loved making images and I knew that I was a visual person. And my parents were very encouraging. My There's creative people on my mum's side of the family. My uncle's a documentary filmmaker. My other uncle organized festivals and wrote poetry and, and put together murals in Belfast and all sorts of different things. So it was there and it was accepted and it was a thing that was a viable career option. You've stated that everything in your life changed as an artist when you learned to stop copying others and listened to the way your hands wanted to draw and paint. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. How did your hands want to draw and paint? Well, it's like everybody has has their own handwriting. You know, if you didn't have your own handwriting, everything would look just like it's printed in a book. That's, you know, I suppose what the ideal way of forming letters are. But everybody's got their own little quirks and, and tweaks and things that make it theirs to the point that handwriting experts can identify, well, that is done by you. And it's the same with drawing and probably the same with thinking. You just can't help the way certain little things happen as you just let them happen. And I realized that there were certain things that I enjoyed drawing and there were certain things that I was good at drawing and when I was just doing that, there was an ease and a flow and a charm about the drawings that I was making that once recognized I was able to turn up the volume on and that was essentially me finding my style rather than like, oh, you know, I like this person's drawing, I'm going to try and draw like that, I want to do that for a living. Well, somebody's already doing that for a living and it's that guy. It was that that sort of sense of, oh, you know what, people actually just like the way that I draw and the way that I see things and that's when the penny dropped. That's when I sort of realized that this is possible, I can do this. You just talked about the notion of charm in your drawing, and and that is a component of, of what you do. Do you have a an actual conscious sense of dialing that charm up or down? It depends. Sometimes you want things to be as understated as possible. Often the charm is in the composition and, and the pace of where the drawing sits in in relation to other drawings rather than just that one moment in, with the, the pen or the pencil. And I normally find that the, the faster I draw something, the more charming it is, because the more human it is, I think, the more flaws there are, and people find flaws charming. Why is that? I do not know. I think it possibly reminds themselves that they're not perfect, and it's okay to not be perfect, and that is accessible. That is something that I could do. You got your degree in visual communication in an effort to get a job. But by the time you graduated, you decided that you never wanted to actually have a day job. Why not? Uh, I don't like being told what to do. (laughs) Uh, I never never really have. Uh, Even the job I had when I was in art college was um, was in a bookshop, but I got away with 
decorating the the windows in the at the front of the shop rather than actually dealing with the customers of the books or huh? so there's anything a little properly. pattern repeating here <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, so when dealing with things that are uh, visual problem solving i can normally see an answer immediately it's frustrating to me to try and work with other people sometimes whenever they don't see what the clear answer should be and Taking that to the next step, it was like when working with anybody and especially being told what to do by anyone, it's, it's extremely frustrating for me and I recognize that early on. So I sort of say that as a joke, but it is kind of serious that I, frankly, at this point, I'd be unemployable anyway. So the first work that you started doing was as a commercial illustrator. Mm-hmm. In fact, I read that you got your first commission on your final day of college. How did you get that and, and who was it for? Yes. So the final day of college, it's the Art College show, and and this it was in Belfast in Northern Ireland, and this local advertising agency came by and they saw the work that I had made for what became How to Catch a Star. They actually pretty interestingly sneakily went off and used the illustrations as a pitch to this bank saying, we've got your new campaign, this is what it looks like, and they used all the thinking of the book and all the characters and everything. But by the time that they came back to actually hire me, I had already got a publishing contract with HarperCollins for that book to be published. So they said, good news, we want to buy all those illustrations. And I was like, well, I'm sorry, they're not for sale, and explained why. And then they were like, oh, dear, and explained to me what had happened. So they commissioned me to make, and the official brief was as legally similar to as possible that book. So I came up with a whole new concept and set of illustrations and visual concepts really for the for the whole campaign which i got paid you know was pretty nominal fee and then about a year later when the thing was still going they by mistake in an email attached the wrong thing and they attached the budget for the overall campaign and i was getting paid about 0.5 percent of what the the overall campaign was even though i'd come up with the whole thing and executed the whole thing and so that, let that be a lesson. Anybody who's a commercial illustrator out there, get yourself some legal advice as soon as you can. And so you already had the contract? Yeah, so it, was you already, were... it was already done. It was already signed. I'd already been paid. And, and I was just like, oh, yeah, well, that was a kick in the teeth. Oh, and are they still using any of that work? No. There was a five-year period on it. And nine years later, I found out they were still using it. So I asked them to stop. And so they did stop, but then they just started hiring somebody else to illustrate as close as legally possible to me. And then I found out about that and told them to totally stop. So they don't use it anymore. You wrote the text and created all of the art for How to Catch a Star. And that was in 2004. You've since published 14 of your own picture books since then. And I read that it took a long time before you were making enough to earn a living from picture books or painting. How long did it take? Because it's only been 10 years. No, I mean, I don't know. I, I used to say it was like if I was making, I don't remember it taking a long time, really. I think I remember saying at one point that I assumed if I could be making a living from just picture books within 10 years, I'd be doing okay. But it, it happened sooner than that. But the first couple of years, I was doing the three things. It was the commercial illustration, then there was the fine art painting, and then there was the picture books. And when one wasn't paying, the other one was. So it was a balance between all three. They kind of kept each other aloft, really. And then uh, it's about six, five, no, four years ago that I, I dropped the commercial illustration. I did get myself representation in the end for that. And I enjoyed it as a way to keep my mind sharp. It's like an exercise almost. It's like doing push-ups. You're given a challenge and you have to visualize the solution to that challenge. And I enjoyed that. And it was never the money was never really great unless it was for advertising. And then that's got its, a whole other set of issues. Uh, but the editorial stuff was good. 
and then the, the fine art stuff was paying sporadically whenever I had a show and would sell some pieces. And then it was maybe about four years before the, the numbers in the picture books kind of went up large enough to make a noticeable difference. And then you had a number one New York Times bestseller yeah, debut. Well, yeah, yeah that's, that's New League stuff really there. We'll get to that shortly. The, the story of your getting a deal for your first book, How mm-hmm. to Catch a Star in 2004, is quite remarkable. Can you share that with our listeners? It's only remarkable in so much as I'm, I'm amazed nobody had tried that tack before. And apparently nobody's really tried it since, even though I've written an article about how I did it. I just did some research. I had an idea for a kid's book, which I completed as part of my final year of art college. And whenever I graduated, I decided to try and get it published because I thought it it was as good as, if not better, than other books that were out there. So I did my research and I looked at the publishers who were publishing the books that I enjoyed and put them together on a list and figured out which ones would be best suited to me then went about trying to find the name of somebody who worked there. So I was sending it to a person rather than just anonymous desk. And I then thought quite carefully about what to actually send them. That old saying that nobody judges a book by its cover is wrong. Totally. People do it every day. Uh, so I went uh, with as much care towards making a package that was well presented and would stand out from all the other crap that people were sending in. And it worked. It landed on the right person's desk. It looked good enough for them to open it up. And about 20 minutes later, they gave me a phone call. And but that was an editorial London. assistant, from what I understand. It wasn't a senior bigwig that yelled out, stop the presses. And I wonder if anybody ever actually yelled, stop the presses. In the movies, the, they did. <laughs> um, the, it was an editorial assistant who was opening the bigwig's mail. And then she saw it and immediately brought it to the, the editor that was there. And it was the editor who was there who who actually called me. Now your books have been translated into over 30 languages around the world. You've had several New York Times bestsellers, and The Moose Belongs to Me, one of your most recent books, debuted number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Congratulations, Oliver. That is just spectacular. I don't think that one ever got to number one. I think it, it debuted on the list, but I don't think it ever got to one. I think that... Oh, my research says oh, okay. it debuted at number one. Oh, well, okay. <laughs> I should go back and pat I, myself on the back. I could be wrong. <laughs> I could be wrong, but usually the research is right. Yeah. Um, this Moose Belongs to Me is about the trials and tribulations with pet ownership, antlers, and the rules of being a good pet. And The Great Paper Caper is a thrilling tale of mystery, crimes, alibis, paper planes, and a bear who wanted to win. The Way Back Home is about a boy who finds himself stuck on the moon. And Lost and Found is about a penguin who turns up at a little boy's door. You're so prolific. How do you dream these ideas up? They're all true stories. Oh, okay. So, uh, well, the, where do you keep the penguin? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, a lot of them are based on true stories. For example, Lost and Found. There's uh, Belfast has quite a world class zoo, actually, and there was a school group years ago who were there visiting, and one of the kids from the school group managed to break away and climb into the penguin enclosure and get out again with the baby penguin under his arm and got the whole way home before anybody discovered it. And in thinking about that story, that was why I started drawing about this these conversations this boy and Penguin were having, and then the rest sort of told itself. Uh, and Stuck as well is actually based on a true story. But some of the, the rest, it just comes from drawing and, and thinking and overhearing and, and inherently knowing how to judge a good story. 
knowing how to tell a good story and knowing how to judge what works next, what feels right, what is best for the story. This moose belongs to me. A big part of how that story ended up came out of the way in which I was actually making the art. Um, in what way? The whole book is about ownership. And I was reading at that time a history of Manhattan and I read about the purchase of Manhattan or the sale of Manhattan to the Dutch and, and how the, the natives who were on the land were like, yeah, sure, you can buy it, but nobody really owns land anyway, so they didn't leave. And that, that was to the great confusion of the Dutch. And in thinking about that, there was an element of truth in that. And, you know, it's like we only own something because everybody agrees that we do. And I just thought that this was a really interesting concept and applied it to owning a pet to a degree. And then when I was sketching out the drawings for the art and how I was going to actually make these paintings, I knew that I wanted to use oil paintings to a degree. And I was – I'd started off making all those oil paintings. And when I was thinking about, well, what way will I – illustrate the background because I know it's got to be a North American story because of the moose. At that point, I glanced over my studio and there was all of these old landscape paintings lined up for another project and I'm thinking about this story and, and how the rules of how to be a good pet and how the, the moose doesn't really get that he's supposed to be a pet. And it's just two things connected to each other. I was like, well, if, the, if it is about ownership, then I should probably just reappropriate these paintings into this book as well because it seems conceptually to fit. I suggested that to HarperCollins who then just thought this is going to be a legal nightmare to try and get clearance because all of these paintings that I've been picking up, they're all either very small-time artists and they're, they're bad prints or they're... Free market, right? Yeah, well, yeah, or they're amateur artists and have never been heard of. So to try and track all these people down was going to be next to impossible. But the one painting that I was my most favourite ended up being on the cover, and that was by this uh, Slovakian artist, uh, Dzierzewski. And he is no longer alive, but his grandson is and living in Montana. And we were able to track him down, and he did give permission for us to use that one. He just sort of thought, yeah, it's going to be a great second lease of life for my granddad's work. And then we're, we're like, all right, we got one. What is it? Like 19 more to go. Uh, <laughs> and then it was the editor had a great idea, and she was like, well, I wonder if he has a back catalogue of other paintings that his grandfather done. And it turns out that he did. So we ended up just using those apart from one or two others. And so the, the book ended up mostly being this collaboration between me and this long ago dead guy now. And it was legally that made it okay. And it ended up being quite fun trying to select the right painting that would suit the right scene and manipulate it in such a way as that it would suit the, the story. And uh, I think it, it all came together in the end. But yes, that idea of the ownership of the painting working into conceptually into the story about about ownership. I don't want to ruin the plot of the book for anybody that hasn't read it. So spoiler alert, I was really struck at the end of This Muse Belongs to Me with the notion of even when we think we own something, somebody else might think they own it too. There could exist at this very time this sort of dual reality of ownership. Mm -hmm. I've read enough about your work to know how much you love dualities. Mm -hmm. I wonder if it has anything to do with something that your father w would tell you when you were growing up. He, I've read that he said that your version of the truth is not the same as somebody else's. And I'm wondering if that's something that has influenced your work. That, well, that is one of the things that, that I wrote down on that list of things that I seem to quote my father as saying. And, yeah, it was, it was very much that. It was the first casualty of any conflict is the truth, I remember him telling me. And, 
And so he always encouraged me to read more than one newspaper, although it doesn't really much matter anymore now. They're all owned by basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the idea that just because you think a certain thing about a scenario does not mean that the person that you're with or dealing with thinks the exact same thing about that scenario. It was something that was reaffirmed with this uh, ancient Greek form of philosophy that he rediscovered later on in life called the Enneagram. And that basically is sort of set up that there's nine personality types and that every one of them will deal in any given situation completely differently. And for him, it wasn't so much an understanding of himself that was eye-opening for that, but it was an understanding of how to just rationalize other people. Rationalize other people, so in, to, in, to make sense of them, to, to understand make, them. Yes, to make sense in his internal paradigm how these other people operate. And the, but one of the other things that he, he also said then was to understand other people, it's more important to look at motivation than action. And that's something that I've always tried to, to hold true to heart. So if you look at why you think they do something, you often will have a greater sense of who they are rather than if you look at what they actually do. And does this come into effect when you're thinking about how to create a character? So, for example, how did you go about coming up with the characteristics of your penguin, for example? Each of the characters in your books really seem to have a soul and an essence and an utterly distinct personality. You, you talked about charm before. It goes way deeper than charm. But there's that elegance of humanity in all of your characters. I think this is fascinating because the Penguin basically – well, first of all, the Penguin is most people's favorite character. Well, the uh, Hueys are also uh, wonderful. But the Penguin basically does nothing. He sits there and does nothing, and I think people project onto him whatever they want him to be. But he wants to learn how to fly. I mean, he's seeking <laughs> to do something that he inherently can't really do well. Yeah, he's like, it's, you know, it's like the younger brother sort of syndrome where you're used to being ignored and you sort of just potter on with what you want to do anyway. See, I think the opposite about <laughs> what you just said about the penguin. I think the penguin does the very thing that we all do, which is hope for something, want to be something more than we are. And the and the notion, another spoiler alert, where the penguin wants so badly to fly that he actually gets into a cannon in order to get shot up to experience what it's like to be aerial. I mean, that. what more human well, is that? Yeah, is there? well, he sort of he got, he got uh, backed into a corner on that one. <laughs> um, but yeah, the I, it's I don't sit down at the beginning and think, well, th these are the personality types of this. It's it's really it's it's much more of an instinctual thing. I draw somebody, or I, I come up with somebody that fits into a storyline, and then everything else after that doesn't actually carry too much scrutiny. It just it either feels right or it doesn't, and it's possibly goes back to this sense of characters growing up and the sense of uh, an innate storytelling that, that seems to, to just flow naturally from the mouths of people from Belfast. Between those two things, I just, without really over-examining things, managed to have a, just a, a good sense of this either works or it doesn't. And with the characters, it's this, the, this is something that they would do or it isn't without necessarily – I don't have a list somewhere of like the character traits of, of any of the characters really. I do. No. <laughs> <laughs> My next question sort of has a little bit to do with that and then I'll stop deconstructing the characters and go back to how you do what you do. But there is really something 
rather heartbreaking in a lot of your books in as much as they are fundamentally optimistic. There is something heartbreaking. Penguins get lost. Boys reach for stars they can't get to. Huey's being different. Crayons being tired or overlooked. But it's always reconciled by the story's end. But why so much searching and longing? People have asked that before, and I'm not entirely sure why. I think there's just there's a, a sense of curiosity in me. Uh, one one person did read into it that was it was it because you grew up with so many brothers and so many cousins that the books are your escape for for uh, solitude and quiet. I was like, I, I, I've never thought of it like that, but possibly. <laughs> See, we're all just projecting yeah. into you, Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's possible, but you know the I am a very curious person. And I, I, I'm fully aware that the world is not always a beautiful place where everything works out. And there is a sense of poignancy to things that I do because that's just the way things are. And I think there's an honesty in my storytelling. So I embrace that rather than try to hide from it. Let's talk a little bit more about your curiosity. In your gorgeous monograph, Neither Here Nor There, Richard Seabrook writes in the foreword, Oliver is especially curious about the idea of duality, the concept that something can mean one thing to one person and something entirely different to another. So I want to talk a little bit more about that curiosity and that duality. What is it about duality that intrigues you so much? Well, the theory of duality, which intrigued me in that book, is one thing. But another realization that other people have made that I've kind of looked at and says, oh, yeah, I wonder, possibly, was this the, the sense of duality in which I grew up with and that uh, it was a split city, really. Uh, there was a lot of violence, but there was also a lot of happiness. And really that being the backbone of the cultural existence in which I grew up and choosing to get past, I think is it just it leaves its marks way down there. But then whenever I was, I fell in with making this project with a professor of quantum physics. And through that, I discovered the the actual theory of duality, which sort of looks at light in particular and how light when measured in particles becomes a particle and light when measured in waves becomes a wave. What I took from that was that, well, it's up to us then how we define that. So we choose the equipment in which we measure. So therefore, it's up to, to us. It's That's perspective, really. It's our subjective measurement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was what fascinated me, is that, that we have the ability to be able to look at anything and make it anything we want to some degree. That's why I started making art uh, about that sense of can we look at things logically and emotionally all at the same time. The painting that you're referring to, you included a mathematical definition of light in a painting of light refracting through glass. Why why the combination? What intrigued you about that combination? Well, the that painting is uh, understanding everything. It's the glass of orange juice you're talking about and the, the, the light blue background. Yes, with the Tropicana in the background. So the, the light blue background one with a glass of orange juice. To, to go back a little bit further, when I fell in love with the idea of storytelling and, and making art, the very early iteration of that was were these individual canvases, these individual paintings that just had a single word or a small phrase. Um, and I was using the account, the canvas to suggest that a narrative, whether the, the narrative momentum of a narrative that's about to begin or has just ended or something, and then you fill in the rest. It's either the beginning, the middle, or the end, and then you fill in the rest. And when I discovered picture books, that thirst for storytelling and using words and pictures mixed together, my thirst for doing that was completely satisfied in the world of picture books. And so quite naturally, the paintings that I was making, the words and the narrative started to fall away from that. 
and that I fell in towards asking questions rather than t telling stories. That one was the first ever attempt at putting numbers and pictures together. And the reason that that happened is after a conversation with uh, an engineer, my wife actually, she, she was an engineer before she came to, to work with me. And we were talking about the difference between our college educations, where in art college you can kind of do whatever you want as long as you've got enough guff to back it up and there is no such thing as a right and a wrong answer. Whereas in engineering school there is very much a thing as a right and a wrong answer. And here I was thinking, God, you know, there's two very valid but completely different ways of looking at the world emotionally and logically. And that's when I started thinking, well, is it possible to do those both at the same time? Hence the let me make a figurative painting and slap a mathematical equation on it. And so I didn't really know what I was doing with that mathematical equation and, and the, the one that you talked about. I just tried to pick something that was sort of relevant rather than just completely arbitrary. So I picked one about the refraction of light and then tried to have that be the light source of the painting. And then that one was purchased by this professor of quantum physics. And it was him explaining it back to me. He sort of assumed it was about Bell string three, and I, was, I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> but but that was what begun that, that whole project then, looking at if it's possible to see the world logically and emotionally at the same time and mixing figurative painting with equations. I read that one of the things that excites you most about duality is that it always eventually leads to an unanswerable, unresolvable scenario. And I, I couldn't help but wonder, really? Always? I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure anybody will ever really know because that means for the duality to be a singularity, there's only one possible way of thinking of things. And I don't know if that's ever going to be true. Why do you like or why would you search for unanswerable, unresolvable scenarios, especially in relation to art? It's going to be a long career. <laughs> hypothetically, hypothetically, or here's a hypothetical. Shouldn't art try to reveal some universal Well, I suppose that's, that's what I'm trying to do. And I fell in love with this notion in quantum physics where they search for the unifying theory of everything. And, and I talked about that a lot. And then, of course, there's that, the, uh, the film about Stephen Hawking that's just come out, uh, which, which discusses that to some level. And I just thought, I don't know, it's not me trying to, to be smart or anything. It's like I'm genuinely interested. Is this possible? And can we look at something? And it all goes back to that thing about looking emotionally and logically at something at the same time, using both filters to study something. And so the notion that we will have access to all information was just that I was having a lot of fun exploring that vague question and going off on all these different tangents and all of this beautiful imagery that was coming out of it. Pretty much everything that I have worked on in the fine art world since then has its roots somehow in, in that one series of conversations that I had with this quantum physicist. So I don't, I don't know. Yeah, it's a pretty vague question. And, and it is the, the idea of art is to try and uncover or comfort or you know, open up the world to, to be seen in different ways. And I, and I think all of those things are happening. But I don't think it's like the before quantum physics was invented, I, somebody said it was like, we're, I think within the century we'll discover everything there is to be discovered. And then this, the quantum world was opened up and that question just went absolutely out of the window because it's more like, actually, I don't think we know anything about this world I think at as all. soon as you begin to think you know everything about anything, you're yeah. screwed. Mm -hmm. I really do. In November of 2014, speaking of access to information, 
you began the first of a series of performances where you dipped your own fully painted portraits into vats of enamel paint live in front of an audience. And the process of dipping the paintings then permanently hid parts of the portrait's features. Talk about access to information. Mm -hmm. What made you decide to start doing this kind of work? Well, that came directly out of this conversation, that original series called Additional Information, and several different things occurred to me uh, during the making of that project, and one of them was the theory of duality, and I started making art about that. Uh, another one of them was the, uh, the theory of hidden variables, which came up in a conversation with this quantum physicist whose name is Hugh Morrison. In his terms, he sort of put it was like, well, to try and explain hidden variables to, in layman's terms to me, he said something along the lines of, it's basically a bunch of things that are out there, forces that are working that we have no idea what they are, but they have an effect on other things that we're, we're trying to calculate, so we have to take them into consideration. So somehow. hidden variables. Yeah. I became absolutely fascinated by that and uh, started thinking about, well, what else is out there that we don't know? And can something have properties if it hasn't been discovered yet? So I started making paintings and then distorting them in some way. I did that in various ways. I made a painting and then put a, sh a sheet of frosted glass in front of it. I made another multiple set of portraits and then collage slowly over little bits of it. And there was another one where I... I made three portraits of one person and then started to slowly cover parts of them with paint and then give the Pantone number instead. So in theory, it's the same information, just given in a different way. But all of, all of these examples were artistic decisions that I was making. The collage certainly lacked a sense of permanence about it. That could always just be peeled off. The frosted glass could always be broken. You could see it was there. And I thought I felt like doing something much more permanent and with less decision-making on my part. I'm not going to paint out certain parts of it. I'm just going to let the rules of the world decide, really. But I despise the idea of throwing a bucket of paint at it because there was a, a non-aggression in all of this. And I didn't want it to suddenly seem very aggressive. Uh, and that's when I had the idea to, to kind of lower, to submerge into a body of uh, paint, one of these portraits. And I hadn't intended really for nobody to see it. It wasn't supposed to be a secret, but it was the, the mechanics of trying to work out the quantity of paint needed, uh, the size of the box and everything. I literally just forgot to take a photograph of it before it went in. That hung in Brooklyn Museum as part of a show and, and it kind of got a life online. And loads of people asked me, did you really paint that whole thing. I was like, yeah, I did. I just can't prove it because I forgot to take a photograph. And then two bizarre things happened on the same day. One, there was a, a journalist who had been in my studio the year before doing a, a, a piece and the piece got, got pushed back and it was, so it was running a year later and they asked me, is it okay to use this photograph? And I had forgotten that they'd sent a photographer to the studio to take a shot of me and there over my shoulder on the wall behind me is that painting like mm -hmm. the day before I dipped it, just ever so slightly out of focus. The crazy thing that happened was I remembered it differently. It had been a year since I had seen it, and I just assumed there were no photographs. And I remember I looked at it, and I remember thinking, I don't remember it that way. I remember her wearing something different in her arms in a different position. That's crazy that that morphed in my mind like that. Isn't that amazing the way that happens? Mm -hmm. I, I actually read that. The idea to do this came about as you listened to your brother tell the story well, of your mother's was, death. That was the second thing that happened later oh, that okay. night. So that was the second bizarre thing, which he started telling this story about our mother 
not about her death, just uh, she had passed away 14 years ago. Just, a, you know, a funny story that uh, I can't even, honestly can't even remember which one now because the, the emotional reaction of what happened overrode the memory because it was a story that I, I just remember like, you're telling that story wrong. That's not what happened. And then thinking, well, maybe it did. Maybe that's the way you remember it happening or maybe, oh, I don't know. And I get really confused and then suddenly I realize this is the same thing that's just happened with that painting. It was the exact same emotional reaction. And at that point, I knew I wanted to make more of these dead paintings. And it was just at the back of my mind. And, and suddenly I, I realized what needs to happen is I need to the, – the people that I select to have their portrait painted will all have experienced a personal close death like Brian and I have. And then I started selecting them and then was like, well, if that's going to be the reason I'm going to select them, I want to talk to them about it. And if I'm going to talk to them about it, I may as well get it on camera. So I sat down with all these people and recorded a two-hour interview or so where I talked about the person they've lost, uh, other memories, things that they wish they remembered better. And then the, the conversation generally just spiraled off on its own tangents and came down to an awful lot about spirituality, about mortality, about identity, about history. And then what I would do is I would use that interview as a way to compose these portraits and I would paint them on my own in my studio and nobody would be there to, to look at them. And I would take elements of that interview and handwrite it onto a sheet of paper and then as part of that performance that I would make sure that nobody had ever taken a photograph of that portrait. I had seen it alone in my studio. People would come in and I would unveil it in front of them and they would be the first, last and only people to see it and only for a couple of minutes, as long as it took me to, t to fill one of those vats with, with paint. And then I would plunge it in front of them and use the, the interview as a way to catch the drips of paint so it wouldn't destroy the floor primarily was the, the reasoning for that. But then <laughs> they inadvertently became these beautiful pieces of art that are hidden in their own way. And then once the whole thing is done, what I do is then I ask people to go to a room next door and talk on camera about what they remember of the painting. How it's, accurate are the memories? Some some were pretty good. And then I, but I, what I'm doing is I'm getting some on the night, some three months later and then some a year later. <gasps> How fabulous. Mm -hmm. And has, do, you, do you find that the memories are changing and morphing? Well, I just did one of the second interviews that somebody from the November one, and, and, he, and the guy was just like, I am so sorry. I literally can't remember. I remember it was an old woman. That's it. He can't remember anything. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, they're changing. <laughs> the crazy thing is one of the questions I always ask each sitter was uh, once we've gone through a bunch of memories and stories and, and, and memories that are important to them, I ask – would it bother you at all if you were to discover that your memories are inaccurate? Every single person so far has, said, has thought about it and then said, no, because it's what I've got. See, it would bother me terribly because it would mean everything I base my truths on is false. People edit, though. People self-edit their, their histories, their stories. Stories get retold and become a little bit shinier. I know, some, but I'd rather that be forgotten. unconscious or subconscious. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to be sort of active in realizing it's all a big sham. <laughs> <laughs> what did, did the, your live performances of this effort change how you feel about the immediacy of your work or yeah. the process of making work? It, it really has. People have asked, is it an emotional thing for me? And it's actually not. The performances are not. They're emotional for other people, but they're not that emotional for me because I don't actually look at the painting during the performance. But what I have noticed is that I have those little emotional moments while I'm painting it. In what way? There was one sitter who was in, and, and I know him well, and I kind of just did like a little smile or a chuckle to myself or something, and he goes, what was that? 
like, what do you, what do you mean? He goes, that, that little laugh you just did, what was that? And I was painting his ear, and it was like one of the best ears I've ever painted. And, and uh, I remember just thinking at that point, I was like, oh, well, it's going to be gone. <laughs> and he and he was the one who, who said, it was like, do you, have you noticed that you've changed, that since doing this, that you've become a little less, I don't know, gravitated towards stuff? Since then, do you find that you're? It's easier to let go. I was like, you know, actually, yeah, sort of liberating. It is. It's very liberating in a strange way, especially after you've learned how to draw an ear by looking at John Singer Sargent. Yes, that's true. Are you able <laughs> to draw an ear in three strokes as he has? I try to. <laughs> <laughs> did you and, do it then? Yeah, I did do it then. <laughs> <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah, um, Oliver. My last question for you is about the future. I read on The Great Discontent that you have a blackboard with a big list of things that you want to do. And if you get to them, and if you get them all done in five years, you'll consider that you will be doing well. Mm -hmm. What are some of those things on the list? I'm not sure how many I'm allowed to talk about. One of them is certainly finishing this project, uh, the dip painting project, because I want to have about 25 in total I want to do. And then I think it's going to work really, land itself really well to an overall exhibition where I get to have some of the interview footage from the from the sitter so that people can hear that then see the painting so they can hear why the painting is composed a certain way and then they can listen to people talking about it afterwards to see if they even notice the composition so you're basically seeing before and after and then the remnants of the during uh, which I think will, will be interesting so that's on the cards and then I have a, a few book projects uh, lined up some of them I've actually already finished that are going to be coming out later this year, like a sequel to Crayons. Oh, good. And then um, a fun book that I've, I've made with another Irish author called Owen Culfer. And then I was doing some work with, with you two for their current tour. Uh, so there might be... More filmmaking in your future? Might be uh, some more filmmaking in my future. Certainly uh, some tweaking of the, the elements that, that are happening there because it was all done on site, really in Vancouver, where they uh, they were getting ready for the tour. Then I, I've got a, a pretty big project in the in the cooker at the minute that is due on the start of July, and that's going to be my wife and I are having our first kids. So oh, we, wonderful. Uh, yeah, so I might take, take a little time off and travel next year. But, yeah, some other projects that I'm not really supposed to talk about just yet. Okay, well, we'll have to have you back when yeah. you can. Okay. Oliver Jeffers, thank you so much for being on Design Matters today. My my pleasure. Thank you, Debbie. To find out more about Oliver Jeffers, go to his website, oliverjeffers.com. This year we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.